This is Attention Humans, the podcast of the University of Colorado Consortium for Climate Change and Health. Each episode, we explore the human dimensions of climate change with some of the leading experts at the University of Colorado and beyond. I'm Jake Fox. I'm Cameron Nicewander. We're your hosts for the show. It is our goal to help you, our listeners, learn about the health consequences of global warming and ask you to get involved in personal and political efforts to slow climate change. As always, please check out our webpage, cuconsortium.org slash podcast for episode summaries, show notes, and our comment box. Without further ado, on to the show. And this long line of cars is all because of you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Attention Humans. Today, we are excited to speak with Dr. Kathy James. Dr. James earned her master's in engineering from CU Boulder, her master's in public health, and PhD from the Colorado School of Public Health. She is an epidemiologist with considerable expertise in environmental systems. In the past, Dr. James has studied the long-term health effects of cadmium, arsenic, and other metals that can contaminate water supplies, and has extensive experience studying disease and environmental exposures in the San Luis Valley of Colorado. Currently, she is an assistant professor in the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health and the Department of Epidemiology at the Colorado School of Public Health, and our go-to expert for information on the effects of climate change on water quality and quantity. Dr. James, did we miss anything important in your biography? (laughs) No, that all sounds great. The only thing I would add is that I have three boys, uh, 15, 13, and 11, and pretty much I have no free time because it's either going to work or going to that. Dr. James, the first question we like to ask at the start of these interviews is how much trouble are we in? Oh, oh in regards to the environment, I have th- three teenage boys. So it's like, where do I start? Yeah. You know, like, um, sorry. Okay. So. For, for the recording, uh, Cam and I also do research with Dr. James. So that's <laughs> we, probably a question I've also asked in other contexts. Yeah, we are fair. <laughs> we are usually in trouble. <laughs> um, but yeah. how much trouble are we in? Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I was going to say change. context is important. You know, I, I am... I consider myself a realist. So people will ask me all the time about our water, and I find myself somewhat in the middle. There are definitely populations that are at extreme risk right now, um, happening at this moment. And these are your poor. These are your less educated. These are people who live in your most highly dense populated areas. There are, these are also people who live in areas that are most susceptible to any weather or climate change. And when I say climate change, I mean short-term, meaning they're in a drought, they're experiencing floods, they're experiencing weather patterns that are more extreme than what they're used to. Dr. James, can you define drought for us? Sure. Drought is any change in precipitation that patterns that reduce the amount of accessible water currently needed for that location. So for example, what defines drought in Florida is going to be completely different than what defines drought in the Gobi Desert. So in a nutshell, there are populations that are in extreme, are at a stage of extreme concern. Um, Is that me right now living in the United States uh, with access to water, no. I, am, I don't feel that populations like myself are at that point where I'm at a growing concern for my personal water or my kids' water. But is that why I'm involved in this research? No. It's for the global concern. It's for 
um, supporting and advocating for those populations that can't. Everyone has a different perspective as to how grave the problem is. And that has everything to do with who you are and what other individual factors are playing a role. And there's a, there's a meme that goes around. Every trouble is, is different based on your perspective. I showed a, like this ginormous dog that had walked through mud and it, only its paws were dirty. And then it showed a Jack Russell Terrier that was like neck deep in mud because he's so short. And I, I think that is important, not just for those of us that are the big dogs to say, okay, well, that's, see, that's why it's not a problem to me. But for all of us to say, we have to take care of those that are the most vulnerable. And so if we have those vulnerable populations, engagement is just as important to us, you know, with just our little paws dirty as it is to, to them. And if we don't recognize that, then that will eventually lead to our own direct experience with a catastrophic event. I think it highlights a, a theme that we kind of seem to touch on a lot, and that is, you know, climate change is this risk multiplier as, as this issue of equity, equity which is mm-hmm. to say that, that people that are already at a disadvantage due to overexposure or under-resourced um, stand to be hit harder by effects of climate change. And one of my concerns with water is that we see now how certain resources that large populations need are almost held hostage by, for money and for power. And I would hate to see water become one of those resources. Then you also think about water quantity. So when you think about waters rising, the polar ice caps are melting, and also the expansion due to the warmer temperatures and the impact on island nations. And so how do you tell an entire nation it's you have to now uproot, go somewhere else where they may or may not be welcomed, and try to maintain their sense of identity that they had for thousands of years. We touched on a lot of things. There. I know. So <laughs> you, just, to, just to summarize it, we talked about uh, commodification of water. So there's this old adage, water is life. And it sounds like you were concerned globally that certain groups might take advantage of water shortages and commodify it. And this right. can exacerbate underlying uh, socioeconomic disparities. You mentioned that water expands when it gets warmer. So when we talk about ice caps melting, ocean levels rising, part of this is because water becomes less dense as temperatures rise. And this can affect island nations who will no longer able be able to persist with higher ocean levels. Can you talk specifically, how does climate change affect water quality and quantity? Sure. Climate change on a big scale, so on that 10,000 foot elevation view, can influence water. And probably the number one way is through weather extremes. So when people think of weather extremes, they're thinking hurricanes, flooding, extreme rain, and extreme drought. All of those impact water. And in a sense, what it's doing is it's taking water from some locations and putting it in other locations. And usually it's taking from areas that already are water depleted and putting them in areas that are already water saturated. And so we look at what happened in um, Nebraska in, what was it, in March or April? Oh, yeah, it was in April. And so we had 
a late spring snow in the headwaters area of that go into Nebraska. So we have all this snow being dumped that's going to slowly melt over the next week while Nebraska got, you know, inches upon inches upon rain. And so you have this double effect happening in Nebraska and it just blew out all of their rivers and all of their farmland. And they estimate up to a million head of cattle were lost. Then all of their cropland has been wiped out. So the land that they use to grow the hay and the alfalfa to feed their cattle and their horses is is unplantable um, for this coming year because of the it wiped out all the topsoil. That's just a, a local example of of what how these weather extremes can completely blow up um, water quality and water quantity especially. Um, as far as quality goes, anytime that you have too little or too much water, you're disrupting that per- that balance that aquifers and surface waters have that allow there to not be too much of anything. So if as an aquifer gets depleted, you have chemical changes within the aquifer, the soil structure, that cause more, um, more minerals and metals to be stripped from the soil and to get into the water. Um, Dr. James, can you take us through what is an aquifer, kind of Uh, how do they relate to the U.S., um, and then maybe what concern is it of of the ground composition surrounding aquifers? Sure. So across the U.S., there's uh, many aquifers, and these are all of the storage of water in underground. And aquifers are the life source of, of majority of the water that we drink and use for irrigation today. So for example, the largest one in the U.S. is called the Ogallala or the High Plains Aquifer, and it stretches from North Dakota all the way down into Texas. And it supplies the irrigation water and the drinking water from for majority of the Corn Belt. Uh, so that's including Nebraska, Iowa, eastern Colorado, um, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. And then there's the Rio Grande Rift Aquifer that stems from southern Colorado and all the way into New Mexico. There's several aquifers in California, and the the importance of these is that they are located usually in areas where agricultural systems have been established, and the aquifers are readily accessible. Uh, so you sometimes you don't have to drill quite so deep, and the use of these aquifers over the past 200 years of agriculture that has been sustained in the U.S. has depleted these. And unless there is an appropriate recharge of the aquifers, either through precipitation or snow melt, then we see overuse. So for example, in the Ogallala Aquifer, we are in certain areas of it, we're actually using water that has been underground and in these catchment locations for, since the dinosaurs. And so the, the term that geologists use for it is fossil water or paleo water. And the problem is, is with paleo water is it can't be recharged. The way that we're drawing from it, that soil compacts once that water is gone and then it's unable to be refilled by water. And there's many aquifers in California that have been so depleted that the ground has actually d- dropped up to eight feet. So even the surface you'll see that towns and everything have sunk about eight feet. The Ogallala Aquifer, though, since it's 
feeds the corn belt, which and the corn belt turns around and supplies up to 85% of the corn used in the world. Um, so it is so, so important. The downfall is the recharge for it. It would take another 6,000 years at our current rate to be able to recharge it back to its normal functioning level. That's fascinating, Dr. James. And I, I was, I've heard before that as these water levels deplete, we can actually concentrate the stuff that's in that water already. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So there's two factors that influence the concentration. One is the change in chemistry. So when you deplete an aquifer, you, are, you actually also change the chemistry of the water and chemistry of the soil, making metals more likely to be stripped from the soil that it's absorbed to. So for example, in the Ogallala aquifer, the increase in nitrates because pest fertilizers are being applied to the agricultural land that then go, go, follows the water that's irrigated and it gets leached into the aquifer. So you have one, a depleted aquifer, that with a changed chemistry, and you have added fertilizers. So the nitrates actually cause more uranium to be stripped off of the soil and into the water. So we've seen up to a 90% increase of uranium in, in the Ogallala aquifer simply because of the depletion and then the addition of fertilizers. So those two combined effects. Uh, in the San Luis Valley, because of the depletion due to the drought over the past 10 years, we've actually seen an increase in the arsenic manganese, tungsten, and uranium. All heavy metals. Uh-huh. All of these are heavy uh, toxic metals, So, except for manganese. Manganese is a micronutrient, but at higher levels can be toxic. How does this toxicity manifest in humans? You know, If I'm drinking this water, what, what are the risks for my health? So that's a great question. So we don't fully know the dose-response curves of many of these metals, especially the ones that have been le- less studied. So arsenic has been heavily studied. But metals such as uranium and tungsten and manganese, um, molybdenum, antimony, um, you know, some of them have been really hard to differentiate where this clinically relevant exposure is at. Because one, the question is, well, what outcomes should we base this on? Do we look at carcinogenic effects? Do we look at cardiovascular effects? Do we look at subclinical effects? And then Um, The other part of it is that many of these have a U-shaped dose-response curve. So like manganese, we need manganese at a lower level. Oh. Are you going to hit me with a with a jargon? Which which word do I explain? That's really funny. Okay, so um, when we think about toxicity of of anything, whether it's toxicity of a chemical or an organic or toxicity of a metal, we think of dose response curves as the more we're exposed, the higher the risk. So it's a it's a response that's a ideally a linear line going up. Um, with a U-shaped dose response curve, it's shaped like a U, meaning that at really low levels, it's actually harmful because our body needs it. So calcium, manganese, um, cobalt, copper, all of these metals we need on some level of a, of a nano scale. So if we don't have enough, we have harm. But as we get more, that harm declines, and that hence that drop with the U. However, if we start getting too much, then we start seeing these toxic effects increase. And so um, on that higher end scale, we start seeing um, increase in toxicity. 
Interesting. For, for the metals, we do know things about, like arsenic, for example. Mm-hmm. What are some of the health risks associated sure. with consumption of this? So it's only been in the past five years, but if you aggregate all of the research together, arsenic has been identified as a systemic toxicant. Systemic meaning we have yet to find an organ system or a system in our body that is immune to the effects of arsenic. So we've linked it to carcinogenic effects. That actually was what drove the US EPA to lower the standard from 50 parts per billion down to 10 parts per billion. And uh, we've linked it with renal effects. We've linked it with um, gastrointestinal effects. We've linked it to cardiovascular effects, respiratory effects. And that when you have a metal that has been shown to mechanistically have, a neg- have negative impacts on all of those systems, that's when we begin to call it a systemic toxicant. We've also seen neurocognitive decline with manganese, high levels of manganese exposure. So, um, so metals as a whole are beginning to be seen as, a, as systemic toxicants. So cadmium is beginning to be seen as one. Um, and uh, manganese, I mentioned, uranium is the other one. Sorry, I knew there was another one. Um, that where research aggregated as a whole has been showing it as a systemic toxicant. Wow, that's a like, fascinating overview of how poor water quality can affect health in individual humans. Can you talk a little bit about how poor water quality or decreased water availability can affect populations you know, on the larger scale? Sure. So probably there the two biggest factors. One is obvious that we need water to survive. And so when you see populations that are being impacted by uh, war zones or populations that are being impacted by famines, sometimes caused by war zones, if you, when you see populations that are being impacted by disease or you know some catastrophic event, usually access to water is going to be the first thing that um, impacts the the population as a whole. You know, you also see circumstances where you see these mass migrations, not just of people, but of animals. And so people who rely on animal populations in order to have food supply, you know, and this could be not just land animals like cows and pigs, but also fish. And as we see migration of animals or the loss of populations of animals, as a result of water, then you also then see the ensuing human migration. Uh, I want to take this one step further and, and ask you a little bit about, um, in addition to climate refugees from these areas, um, about how direct conflicts can manifest in a place like Lake Chad, for example. Right. So I, th- I think any time that you have a population that was once flor- surviving and flourishing, and something changes and causes them to no longer be flourishing, they become desperate and they become in need of the basic essentials to survive, shelter, safety, food and water. Lake Chad is an example of an inland freshwater lake that is, is very large and it has been used over several generations to provide not just the water for multiple countries, but also the irrigation water to, to grow food, to raise cattle. It's also been used as, as a fishing location. So 
um, fish is one of the main protein sources for that area. And um, as weather patterns change, you'll use, we see the shrinking of the lake. The downfall to the shrinking of the lake is not only now you're creating environmental refugees who no longer have access to water, they no longer have access to food, and so they're moving with this changing um, shoreline, but the lake is also creating islands, and these islands are, are very spread apart, and they're also a fantastic place to live and reside. And so, you know, these islands have um, har- harbored hiding places for um, groups that have been forming um, as a result of displeasure with the current governing body that they're uh, involved with, the current political system, the current economic system. And anytime, you know, groups disagree with that and they're allowed to be isolated, then they're allowed to recruit or harness or bring in and take care of vulnerable populations. So for example, like Boko Haram, then that's when you can see them growing and the their beliefs and their, whether positive or negative, depending on your perspective, be proliferated through this aggregation of a vulnerable population, I think that is a a cause of concern. Um, We also see situations like this in in Syria and where you have dissidents against a a political or governing body and then the retaliation is to withhold water and food and resources and then you see as a as a consequence large scale migration and large scale death and in sadly the complete loss of a generation of a culture and and a community yeah not to mention that it's it's easier to recruit people from a population that have had these things taken away from them Abs- absolutely desperate when somebody is desperate survive, for survival um, you know there it is easy to recruit them Dr. James, uh, we're curious, how, how can we ensure water security here at home for ourselves and our communities? Um, probably the best thing I would say is, is one word, moderation. All right, so, Simple things such as turning the water off while you brush your teeth, taking a five-minute shower, eating less red meat or meat in general, eating less almonds. So it's not even about beef. This isn't a you know, an anti-slogan against the beef industry. I mean, I'm from a farming family. But almonds and avocados are some of the worst users of, of water, and yet they're the hippest things to be eating right now. I heard, so, I heard is it like there's a liter of water that goes in the production of one almond? Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, no, it's, it's yeah. really astronomical about, you know, and then when you think about almonds and avocados in the U.S., they're mostly grown in California. And so we're already talking about a water-scarce area of the United States growing one of the hippest food products right now that also is the least sustainable. So th- so I, I want to stress this isn't in any way, shape, or form targeting the beef industry, but um, eating less beef, less almonds, less avocados, everything in moderation. I'm not saying don't eat. I'm just saying everything in moderation. And you know, and there's, you know, how you water your, your, your lawn. I mean, right now, irrigation is the highest source of water consumption in the United States, you know. And identifying really strong ways, you know, as far as innovation goes, 
um, businesses and industries should be really thinking about how do we take wastewater from here and, and reuse it. Individually, just use water in moderation and um, you know, be very aware of the food you're eating and the sustainability of that product. If you, if you stick to what is grown, able to be grown locally and what is, able, what is being grown in season, then, um, you know, then usually what you're eating is sustainable. And then as a community, um, you know, just work, you know, as a community to reduce pollution of our current waterways. Thank you for that overview on how we can ensure water quality and quantity moving forward. You know, we've talked in this podcast, this episode specifically about how climate change will affect water. Do you have any advice or um, ways that our listeners can get involved to address climate change at large? Well, sure. I mean, there's, you know, there's all the things that people have already been saying, you know, drive less cars, eat less meat, you know, um, use limited resources, you know, in moderation and not in, in excess. But my, my big thing is, you know, for example, in, in a discussion with people who don't believe, either don't believe in climate change or don't believe it's a pressing issue, um, I like to actually engage in conversations with them more, usually where I'm listening more, because um, there's still some truth to their perspective. And so I don't think it's about getting information from what you already believe in. I think it's also getting information from what you disagree with, because it only makes the information that you have stronger. I think you can also, you know, by doing that, you can find out what's important to them uh, and what's important to, you know, various people and various populations and various communities. And I, I think Jake and I truly believe that, that once you've identified a, a factor of major importance and then you describe how climate change affects that factor, it's much easier to bring somebody to the table and have a conversation about something as polarizing as climate change. Right. And tied to that, you know, not only just finding out what's important to them, but where is the common theme? So in everything, you know, there there's a common theme. And if you can identify that, usually, I mean, usually you can, but it might take several conversations. But once you identify that, and regardless of what the polarizing issue is, um, because the U.S. has a lot of them, um, there's a common theme. And if, if that becomes the focus, then it's it's amazing how quickly you can move to identify the best path to mitigate and alleviate problems. So. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. No problem. My pleasure. For our listeners, that is it for this episode of Attention Humans. Please check out the website for our show notes. Otherwise, we hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Attention Humans, the podcast of the University of Colorado Consortium for Climate Change and Health. We unpack the human health dimensions of climate change and emphasize the urgent need for all of us to get involved. We want to thank Dr. Rosemary Rochford and Dr. C.C. Sorensen for their mentorship on this project. Ellen McFarlane and Matt Cook for technical support. Cake for the jam and theme music. 
our awesome guests for sharing their expertise, and you, our listeners, for paying attention. See you next time.